You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. I'm going to read the section to you once more, the one that we've been focusing on these past couple of weeks. As you know, we've been in the section verses 14 through 18, and we've uh, kind of landed on verse 14, but I want to read this in context again so so you remember what we spoke about. Verse 14 starts off by saying, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried, This was, a, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks, ranks, ranks me, because He was before me. For from grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So, dear friends, as we continue our study this morning, we are focusing and zooming in on the person of Jesus Christ. And to me, that is the most important person you and I will ever come across, will ever meet, will ever know, because it is Jesus Christ who makes us saints, who makes us acceptable before God. Now we take this into big consideration because John is expressing this daunting truth that God has become a human. I want you to evaluate yourself for a bit. Think about all your human tendencies. Think about all your natural, your whole body, your whole uh, biosystem, your whole chemistry that exists in you. Think about everything that goes on humanly in your life. Think about your daily struggles. Think about your daily sins. Think about your pain, your suffering. Think about the hurt, the physical illness. Think about everything that you have to infront every day of your life. Work, money, job. What am I going to do the rest of my life? Think about all of that and realize and understand that God submitted himself to that very nature. And that is why, my friends, we, we are spending time on this because Most of us have just a general concept of who Jesus Christ is. We haven't understood what his human nature truly entails. Everything that we think about and do and and act, that's what Jesus Christ himself felt as a human being. Yet, as the book of Hebrews lets us know, he endured no sin. What makes you and I different from Jesus Christ? Last week we mentioned it and we zoomed in a little bit and we said that Jesus Christ was exactly like us in every single way. Every part of him was like us in his human nature. But what makes him different? What makes him distinct? Other than that, the realization that he is God, but the fact that he lived here like you, like me, and committed no sin. That is the biggest separation between Christ and us and ourselves. That is what makes him distinct, and that is what qualifies him 
to be our Savior. You have a Savior in Jesus Christ. He is your Lord and He is your Savior because you and I are sinners in need of rescue. So friends, the, the human dilemma, the human problem, our situation before God isn't that we're broke. Isn't that we don't have a lot of money. Isn't that we don't have great jobs. Isn't that we're Latinos in the United States. It isn't that, 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 that we're just a, a humble people from humble origins that we can advance in our community or in our, in, in our surroundings or in government. It isn't that the government is against our people. Panic. It isn't the physical, natural situations around us. Our biggest dilemma and our biggest issue and problem is the fact that we are sinners. You and I. And I'm not excluding myself from this. You can ask my wife all you want. Hey, is Jonathan holy? She'll be like, oh, well, maybe just when he preaches. <laughs> but other than that, I'm a man think like a man, I do things as a man, and sometimes I fail as a man. We've been left here in a state of panic. The book of Romans teaches us that we've been left to ourselves. We have been handed over to the kingdom of darkness, and therefore we serve only the prince of this world or the king of this world, which is Satan. So, so my friends, before you get scared, before you be like, whoa, what's going on here? I'm just letting you know to make sure that the reason why you understand you come to church is because you have no other option in this world or in yourself to save you from that status. If we zoom in and examine every aspect of what that means in our life, we realize that it isn't because we were just broke or it isn't because that we just don't have the right job. It, it isn't in that sense. It is God coming down to save us from sin. That's what and, and John specifically presents in verse 14 presents God coming down to flesh to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sinful nature, so much so that he doesn't send, the Father does not send his Son as a businessman to give you good business advice. You can have a good career. God doesn't send his son as a, uh, a doctor just to heal your sicknesses, your physical sicknesses. God doesn't just send somebody to motivate you, to get you out of bed so that you can do something in life. He doesn't send a motivator. God sends what the human necessity most desperately is in need for. And as we've understood this, he's a Savior to redeem us from sin. And as we've been spending time in John, that is what the person, the Gospel of John, wants us to really meet 
and to give. He doesn't want to awe us with, with spectacular things. That's why at the beginning of all this, we don't see any miracles that Jesus is doing. We haven't encountered a miraculous Jesus yet where Jesus begins to, we're going to read later on when we go into the gospel further, we're going to read him raising up the dead. We're going to read him uh, uh, doing miracles and performing stuff for the sick and for the blind. And we could be amazed by all of the spectacular miracles that Jesus does. But John doesn't want us to focus first on the miraculous Jesus. John wants us to focus in on the God Jesus, the God incarnate, because it is through his flesh, as he says, and the word became flesh. It is through his flesh that he accomplishes his work. So the fact that God came down on earth the flesh symbolizes and gives us an idea that there is a work to be accomplished. And my friends, this privilege that you and I have to gather, to be here, to sing and to worship here is founded on the work of Jesus Christ. The fact that he has accepted you and washed you and cleansed you from this. So though we were entrenched in this evil human nature of ours, the fact that we have a Savior in Christ has given us an alternative. Or better yet, has given us a new life. So the fact that we're drenched in our sin on this side of our of, of our chronos or of our time frame in, in life. And when we come to Christ, we are set on a new foundation, a new beginning, a new creation. That, that separation is for us celebration. That separation for us is a motive of coming to church, not for the necessity of just trying to feel good, but coming to church because we've realized and we've recognized that we dedicate ourselves for a moment of our beginning, of the beginning of our week, honor and worship and glorify a Christ who has saved us. If you honestly believe that there is a heaven and if you honestly believe that there is a hell, then you better be more than thankful to Christ for saving you from that hell. And in the Latino community, hell has been presented in a pretty gruesome way. Not only in the Latino community, but in the Jewish community, in the Greek community, in the gospel community, Jesus himself speaks on hell in a very scary way. And we'll get to that. It's, well, not too much in John, but whenever we study the Gospels, like Matthew, we're going to see a lot of those uh, details that Jesus says about hell. And that's where we've been saved from. Now, you can kind of brush that off and be like, you know, hell, hell isn't real. And heaven, you know, flying around with angels and wings and clouds with the harps and stuff like that. I don't really think that's a possibility, but hey, man, we're here and we're learning the Bible, and the Bible points us in that direction. So you've got to come to a conclusion within yourself to say, I'm going to submit to the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, and I'm going to believe it. 
or I'm going to just kind of like brush it off a bit and, and move forward. God came to the flesh to accomplish his work. Now, so for the remainder of the time, I'm going to be borrowing a lot of detailed information from the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews has, has given us an accurate depiction and representation of what Christ's work looks like here on earth. That's why when we read chapter 7, we started off by reading from verse 11 and on, and the, the writer of Hebrews begins to explain something that may be foreign to us, because if we haven't spent time in the Old Testament, if we, if we don't really read our Bible, and we kind of just avoid the Old Testament altogether, if we put that to the side, then we never really get a full understanding of what Christ does. So Christ was hanging on a cross for because that's the way the Romans did it. Well... The writer of Hebrews explains to us why Christ is hanging on that, why, the, why Christ is hanging on that cross, for what specific reason and for what specific purpose. So we're going to be using a lot of that information to, to emphasize and to, and to put on a pedestal this importance of verse 14, that God became a man. The Word became flesh. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes the Old Testament, because there is a order being done in the Old Testament for the washing away of sins. So if you ever take a gander at, at the Old Testament, even the first five books, if you want more information about that, ask, ask one of our elders here, Henry. He teaches a class on the Pentateuch here in, in our Spanish service, and hopefully one day we have enough people sign up for it so we could open it up for the English service. But if you want to take, you want to get more information on the, on the Pentateuch and on the, on, the, on the Word of God in the Old Testament, you'll understand in it that there is a certain way God habitates within his people and what his people have to do in order to coexist with God. In the Old Testament system, in the old way things are laid out, the people were only able to live with God according to a mediator. What is a mediator? The one that stands in the middle between God. Why? Because a sinful people... A people given up to their human nature, people that have inherited sin from the time of Adam, can't take away their own sin. They need a mediator. So what the Old Testament presents to us is this mediator concept between God and man in order for a mediator to intervene to offer up sacrifices on behalf of a people that cannot do it themselves. So I don't want to get too into this, but I want to make sure that you guys have a clear understanding of why we're going to be diving into Hebrews and, and, and why we're going to be borrowing some of Hebrews' uh, Christology so that we can emphasize this point. So in order for the people to be right with God, there needed to be mediatorial work on their behalf. And so every day that they sinned, the people would have to offer up certain sacrifices through the priesthood. There was daily 
burning of incest. There was a daily altar of sin. There was these, the, the, these concepts of, of, of sacrifices, of, of sin offerings, and, and a lot more detail. But in order for the people to live correctly and right before God, there was a priest that had to do it for them in order to be able to stand before God. What drives this point even further is that blood needed to be shed on the altars through animal sacrifice. And, and I hope that you haven't tuned out because this is Old Testament. But I don't want you to be thinking like, wait, wait, we're, we're going to be offering up sacrifices here with animals? Like, what, what about PETA? And, and, no, no, like, I want you to remember this is Old Testament pattern. Blood needed to be shed for the washing away of sin. The priest, the mediator, accomplished that job. And what's even more incredible is that that mediator, once a year, would have to atone for the sins of all the people. And that mediator had to be close to perfect to offer up these sacrifices. So, because there is no perfect human being apart from Jesus Christ, what this mediator had to do was offer up sin offerings for himself in order for him to offer up sin offerings on behalf of the people. And what's even more interesting, and just to drive the point a little further, is that this mediator, this high priest, the night before he offered up the, on the Day of Atonement, people had to watch him sleep. If you're married, you understand what that means. Sometimes you just open your eyes and you see your wife looking at you. You're like, and she's just like, I love you. And then you go back to sleep. Well, in this case, the priest had others around him watching him sleep and guarding his sleep from any impure thoughts that could arise in his sleep in order for him to be able to offer up a good sacrifice on the next day. So it implies a lot of heavy stuff, but what is driving here is that there needed to be some type of perfect sacrifice. Though the New Testament tells us that the old system fell short, it was as close as they could get. So when we begin to read Hebrews, in light of Jesus Christ, all of this is playing an effect on, on, on our typology and our Christology of what he is doing in that moment. So that's why when we read chapter 7, it, it talks about the Aaron priesthood, the, the, the priesthood according to Melchizedek, and, and all of this priesthood information in order for us to see this is what needed to be done. But then Christ came in, and, and, and it compares Christ to this other priesthood, and it said in this priesthood, a lot of them had to come into the picture because there was thousands of years between history. In this context, in Jesus Christ, there's only one. It's been 2,000 years since Christ was on this earth. We don't need another mediator. We haven't needed another mediator since Jesus Christ because he was the most perfect. 
and he offered the most perfect sacrifice. Something that system just couldn't do. So, that was a brief intro to Old Testament history. There a little bit, but now we identify the weight of the action. Now we understand the gravity of what the Christ entails. Now we understand the work of Christ and on our behalf. We have one mediator. That is why it's interesting that the names that the Roman Catholic system offers for their priests, for their pope, for their intercessor, are all names that belong to Christ. He has taken the place of Christ. But we need no other mediator. We only need Jesus Christ. He has done it, my friends. That's it. The work has been done. And it is in Hebrew, so if, if you can open your Bible to keep your thumb on John, just so that I could keep t- taking you back to John every once in a while, but, but open up your Bible to, uh, to the book of Hebrews and, and just be ready to skim and, and skip around. Where, this is not an exposition on the book of Hebrews, but it's going to serve us well to, to find certain things. And I'm going to run this a bit, stand that Hebrews of Jesus Christ. So we see, as we read earlier, that he comes from the tribe of Judah. Chapter 7, verse 14. This lineage is in humanity. He is a human being. In chapter 4, we read last week, chapter 14, it's accumulating sin. He was tempted and he did not sin. When was the last time you were tempted and you didn't sin? Remember that. This is always good to compare what Christ has done. Verse 5, I mean chapter 5, verse 8 shows us that he, it says in verse 8, although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. The humanness of Jesus Christ allowed him to learn how to be obedient. And this plays a big factor as we we go on in our exposition. Chapter 2, verse 14, emphasizes once more that... Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, in his flesh and in his blood, proving the humanity of Christ, he was able to accomplish salvation. How? I want you to read verse 14. It's important. How does he accomplish this salvation? Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, who? The devil. The devil has the power of death, and Christ, through his death, 
defeats death. This is Christ in flesh and blood as our high priest. He was developed in all human aspect in order to qualify him for the work he had to do. See, the mission of Jesus Christ here on earth wasn't just to prove himself mighty. We don't, we don't worship Jesus Christ just because of the miracles he did. We don't worship Jesus Christ just because he was a good person. We don't worship Jesus Christ because he fed the poor. And we can applaud that. And we're like, wow, Jesus, you were so into social justice. Wow. Man, we need to follow that. You were, you were so involved with the disenfranchised people. You were so involved with the poor people. You were so involved with the sick people. Man, and we applaud that and we thank you for that. Though that was good and great and awesome, it isn't why we worship Christ. That isn't the object of our worship. It is the person and the work of Christ on the cross that we worship. Because then what happens after the cross is what has given us life. So there is a work that needs to be done. There is a direction that we all need to focus on in the human nature of Christ. It isn't just on the external evidence of his divinity on this land. It is what he had to do at the end of his life. Why he had to die and why he had to go to the cross. So the question that bothered the first 400 years of the early church, the question that came up in the Middle Ages of why the human nature? We've understood it to a certain extent here today. We understood a little bit of the human nature and and uh, a little bit of the reason behind it. But this question should be able to be answered by you. Why did God have to become a man? Couldn't God have saved us any other way? Is there a real necessity for a bloody, gory, disgusting, uh, like just... You know, is that really needed? Is that really needed for real? Like, do we have to watch the Mel Gibson film again? Like, was that all necessary, basically? And we have to realize that that body that took on our shame and humility and our, and, and our nature had to be done so in order to accomplish a divine plan. So in these last 18 minutes, just in case you're thinking like, how, how much more is this guy going to go on? In these last 18 minutes, my intention for you is to know why God had to become a man. This wasn't just a magic trick to show everyone what he could do. It was part of his plan. And at first... We have to understand that this was an Old Testament expectation. This is what was done for 4,000 years before Christ. There was always a mediator for his people. And like we learned last week, all those mediators failed. 
time and time again. So the book of Hebrews is interesting because it presents to us not only the work of Christ and his mediatorial aspect, but it presents to us this this wonderful juxtaposition of God and Christ being better than everybody else that came before him. And I love the way the, the book of Hebrews starts because it compares Christ immediately to the angels which was a very kind of, uh, it shifted the attention of many people in the first century to worship and to adore angels. And it's interesting because in our context, angels sometimes seem to come up as part of a worship experience or they're considered some type of saints that are hovering around us and protecting every, everywhere we go. And, it, and our mothers and our, would tell us, Ay, que vayan con, con los angelitos que nos protejan, protect us with the angels that watch over us. And though that has some truth to it, sometimes they've taken on identities of worship and we've become more involved in angel or saint worship as opposed to creator worship. And this was the case in the first century church, even when John spoke. And so the writer of Hebrews has to be very clear. Jesus is better than the angels. Angels don't compare at all. He is superior I want you to open up chapter 1 of Hebrews just so you can see it a bit right there. The writer says in verse 5, in doing and adding all of this comparison, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him of the angels he says he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire but of the sun here's the comparison again your throne O god is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom so what is happening right here the comparison to the angels is vast god is saying i spoke to my son I gave my son authority and the angels are there to worship my son and to serve my son. Jesus Christ was to be served by the angels. So in verses 4 through 5, we have Jesus Christ having a greater name. In verse 6, we have him being worshipped by the angels. In verse 10 through 12, we read that he is unchanging in everything that he does as creator, which shows that he is God, greater than the angels. He is to rule and share all the attributes with the Father in verse 9 and in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1. And the angels are simply there to minister to Jesus. So, a lot of us can say, Well, in comparison to Moses, Abraham, Noah, Isaac, and all the prophets that came before Jesus, well, of course, it's easier for Jesus to be better than them because they were simply men. They were simply human beings. All right, so Jesus had the upper hand because they were simply human beings. Ah, but that's not the case here. Jesus was greater than spiritual beings. The angels were inferior to Christ. So that sets up why Christ 
human nature had to come into existence. As part of this identification from the Old Testament, this is what needs to be done and seen in the new Redeemer, the one that will come and liberate the people. The angels serve Him and honor Him because they are greater. So Jesus Christ became the representative as a human being here on earth to accomplish what the human beings themselves could not do. My, my, my friends, listen to me. I mean, if, if you forget everything I just taught you about the Old Testament and about what Hebrews is about, remember this. Jesus is in our place to accomplish what we could never do. If you are going to exist for another 40 to 50 years, and I pray that you do, I pray that you live to 90 or whatever it is, if you are going to live that long, nothing you could do in those next 40 to 50, 60 years of your life will ever win you favor with Christ. Or, in a sense, to put it in a less theological term, nothing will get you into heaven apart from what Christ has done for you. So, I want you to get this because there's many ways out there, friends. You can go to any other church. You can go to a place. They have atheist churches now on Sunday mornings. And they gather together and they sing Beatles songs. If you like the Beatles, you'd probably be like, hey, where is that? Is that here in Chicago? I think they have one in Chicago. I'm not sure. I'll hook you up with the pastor or whatever they call it. But there's other churches. Or there's the simple, beautiful option of staying home. It's getting cold. And you and I know Chicago weather. Come February, Sunday morning, when it's negative 10 degrees, negative 30 below windshield, uh, the covers seem like a much better place to stay. There's alternatives, my friends. But what the Bible says is that none of those alternatives will win you favor with Christ or with God or entrance into heaven. There isn't this phony, fake concept that the world has spoon-fed us in our 21st century modern, postmodern culture that says all religions go to heaven. All religions lead to God. Just pick one. Be a mixture of Buddhist and a Hindu, and, and you're good, man. Just, just mix it together and, 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 and love people and help people and be good and do good, and, and you're fine, and you're good. And that's, that's all you need. Friends, the, the Bible presents us a harsh reality. Jesus Christ says, I am the only way, I am the only truth, and I am the only life. Whether you and I believe that, on us. But there is no other way and there is no other truth and there is no other way life but in Jesus Christ. So what Jesus has done in his humanity was to accomplish what you and I could never do. So any other religion, if you, 
I'm not just talking about our church here, but if you walk out of the Christian realm, the Christian faith, any other entity or solution or counterattack to the faith or, or, or to religion, anything else, think about it. Go anywhere else. You will have to do something in order to attain salvation. There's no, there's no other way. It's do these things. Be meritorious. Act a certain way. Do these. Give this. Give alms. Give to the poor. Do this. All of that stuff. And, and it's in doing that that you win salvation. Whereas opposed to the Christian faith, it's because you are saved and you have a new heart, you serve others. And so those things naturally come out from your heart. So Christ in the human flesh exists for the sole purpose of accomplishing in you what you could not do for yourself. I want, I want you to read this in, in the book of Psalms because this is where Hebrews borrows it from. Go, to, go with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 8. And we'll read it from the beginning. Psalm chapter 8. O oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy of, and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? Hear this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him a dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what's happening here? Why is Hebrews going to begin to borrow imagery from the Psalms? especially from chapter 8, because Hebrews is going to present to us who God intended us to be. Did you read that? Did you, were you able to get it from chapter 4? I mean, from verse 4? It says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Basically, what the writer is saying is like, who are we that you look down from heaven on us? Are we that interesting? And then he says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. In, in the original Hebrew, it's a little lower than God. We are God's ultimate creation. And then it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. What, what it's saying there is that, he's, that he has shared with us this glory. He has given to us glory to represent God. And then what are we going to do with that glory? In verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Basically because we represent God and because we show who God is in our being, we have power and authority over all creatures on the planet. And then he finishes it off by, by saying so over the animals, over the, the, the birds in the heaven. We have this because we represent God. But 
This is the original design for man. This isn't the reality of it in our time. Even when David writes this, he is prophesying about a future man that will restore that image back because he, in his human nature, will be the only one who can represent the glory of God correctly because human beings failed to do so. So my friends, I'm sorry I lied to you this morning that I was going to go through the four reasons why God had to come into being as a human. I will have to save those for next week. But I want to leave here with this understanding first. For me, this is more important than any points that I have. Or The most important aspect is you begin to understand and develop this notion that God has done the work on your behalf. Will that excuse you from any other action on your part? No. The Bible says no. However, it, doesn't, it excludes you completely of saving yourself. Can you imagine the weight on your shoulder for God to give you the, the opportunity to save yourself? when you are completely entrenched in sin and, and you have no other alternative other than to look into yourself for that inner strength? It, can you imagine? Some of us can't even fast for five hours. We can't even do a fast because we, our stomachs are like... And, and like two hours into our fast, we're like, forget it, man. Let's go to Burger King and, and let's dog and, and, and let's get, out of the, get this out of the way. I'll try it again tomorrow. Some of us can't even control our own stomachs. Some of us can't even control our own eyes by looking at other women with lustful eyes. Some of us can't control what we look at on the internet. Some of us can't control what we spend our money on. Some of us are in debt because we want what others have and we put it all on our credit cards just to show others that we've got when we really don't. Imagine if it was on us. To save ourselves? Christ comes in and he says, I've done the work. And I lived like you to do it. But unlike you, I did no sin. I lived perfectly so that you wouldn't have to do it. Because you couldn't. And, and, and friends, that's why as we gather and we worship we have that understanding and that weight is lifted off our shoulders and we can sing and say, our sins, they are many, your mercy is more.